Hi everyone, my name's Mark Norwich. I'm from Community Church Northampton and also the principal of KST, King's School of Theology, as many of you know, because <laughs> you've been participants in it. It's a real joy to join in with you there at Hub Church in Basingstoke today and to help develop this uh, series of thinking about what does it mean to be a church without walls and what are those walls that restrict us uh, from really having the impact that God wants us to have in the world around us. So today I'm particularly developing this idea of the sacred secular divide. So what if we were, as a church, stuck behind walls? Maybe we've got a bit more of an idea of what that feels like in these days of lockdown. Um, I don't know how it's been for you, for us as a family, my second son has an immune deficiency, and so we've been shielding. We've not been outside of our house or our garden uh, over that main lockdown period from uh, March to August. Uh, and so we've been stuck here in our house, and it kind of gives a different perspective, doesn't it, on what our own little world looks like with this boundary uh, to the world around. We had one particular day in lockdown when we're sitting down uh, at to have our evening meal, and I suddenly realised that Murphy, that's our chocolate brown Labrador, wasn't there. He's got a bit of a reputation for occasionally going walkabout, and there was a bit of a panic as we realised that he wasn't on his bed, he wasn't around. And so we did this mad, left our food, we did this mad panic around the house trying to find him. Sure enough, not to be found. He's not in the house, he's not in the garden. And so we kind of head to the gate. We realise the gate's open. And we stand there at the boundary of our property going, what do we do now? Do we leave and find the dog or what do we do? We're stuck. What are we supposed to do now? And just as we're in that dilemma moment, what do we see? But coming up the road towards us is a lovely chocolate brown Labrador. Murphy is coming towards us. His tail wagging. He is happy as Larry. Uh, but it's not just him. In his mouth is a box. And he's carrying this box so wonderfully carefully, like he's a little puppy in his mouth. And he's bringing it back to us and he heads back towards the gate and he puts the box, uh, gives the box to us, which is unusual because he doesn't normally drop anything, to be honest, certainly not a ball. Uh, and he gave it to us. And in this box was two fresh cream cakes. It's a box of fresh cream cakes. He's absolutely delighted he's brought us a wonderful gift we're absolutely terrified thinking where on earth has he got this from like what's he done has he gone into someone's house has he wandered through found the best thing ruffled you know through the cupboards found the best thing he could think of that we'd like and bring it back how on earth has he got hold of these box of cakes and what on earth are we going to do about it um obviously we were concerned uh, about whether it's infected in some way. So we left it on the wall think, left, and just looking at it going, what are we supposed to do now? Uh, we went about our business for a little bit, puzzled, bemused, until we had a moment, I had a moment actually, of revelation. I was there washing up and looking out the kitchen window out onto the road. And what did I see? But the Tesco van driving up and he went to the house opposite. Uh, the driver, the delivery driver got out of his uh uh, cabin went to his truck he took out of the back of the van a crate of shopping he picked it up and he placed it behind him and then he turned again to get another and at that moment the light bulb went on murphy has spotted this this has happened somewhere wherever murphy's gone he's found the tesco man the tesco man has 
turned his back. Murphy's gone for the box. He's picked up the first thing he's found and he's run off as happy as Larry. He is a bad dog. He's stolen from Tesco's. And this poor delivery driver actually probably didn't realise at all, is my guess. Um, but somewhere, somebody, as they've gone through their shopping, of going, I'm sure I ordered a couple of cream cakes. What were we to do? Well, it's quite easy, isn't it? We wrote, wiped it with antibacterial wipes and then ate them because they're very lovely. Um, but I wonder whether that's a little illustration of how we've been as church at different times, that we've got this sacred secular divide, us inside our walls and there's the world outside. And occasionally we go on a little trip. We go on a little evangelistic adventure and we see what we can grab and can bring it back. And we think that we've done a good job. I wonder if this wall around us and today this one of sacred secular divide is actually not a wall that God wants for us at all, but it is something that is in our own thinking. And that's the thing about when we think about the sacred secular divide, it's not a physical wall, it's a wall in our thinking that we think wrongly. And as we like to say at KST, if you shape your thinking, you change your life, meaning that our thinking does influence our behaviour and we need to get God's way of thinking about the world. So sacred secular divide. What do we mean sacred? Well, we mean God's space. We mean holy ground, the place where God is. And maybe secular, we think about where God isn't. We think of a world that's carrying on on its own happy way without any regard for God whatsoever. Sacred and secular. What sort of sacred secular divides do we mean when we think like that? Well, we could think, first of all, about the divide between heaven and earth. Heaven. God's space, God fully there, his kingdom fully come, the earth in rebellion against God, distant from God, divided from God. When we think of that sacred secular divide, it's quite clear that God has not allowed that divide to stay there. The incarnation, God reaching out from heaven to earth and coming in Jesus in order to bring heaven to earth, in order to bring the kingdom of God in a more real way to earth. Stanley Howard says, in Christ, God refuses to stay in his place. It is divine intrusion. He is coming to a world maybe that doesn't even want him. But he is coming because God cannot be restrained to one place. We might think looking at the Bible, that the main movement, and we often talk like this as Christians, the main movement is from earth to heaven. We think that we want to go there, <laughs> to, to head away from earth to heaven. But in fact, in the New Testament, more often, the movement is the other way round. It is heaven coming to earth. That's what Jesus did in the incarnation. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? Come, kingdom of God, come. God who is in heaven, come. Bring all the goodness of the kingdom of God where your kingdom is fully come and your will is fully done. Bring that here. That's the trajectory. That is the movement. In the incarnation, God refuses to stay in his place. Maybe we've got a bit more of a concept over that over lockdown. I don't know how you feel. Before we used to go to church, we went to a place, to a building, I think you meet in a hotel room, I think. Um, 
you went there, you did church over there, and then you came home. I remember someone saying to me that they were like, felt like they were commuters to church. Uh, and then off they went over there, they did church over there, and then they came back. But the truth is now, church is coming to you in your home. Church refuses to stay in its place. That Our concepts of where God is and where God is active is now not just over there in that other meeting place, but it is in your house. Have a look around. What's your house look like? Nicely decorated? Whatever it looks like, it's the place where God is. It's the place where God resides, where church is. It is active. Look at yourself, your own person, your own life, your own work. That also is the place where God is and where God is working. There's a wonderful moment at the moment of Jesus' death, uh, which is that uh, Jesus dying on the cross. And just as he breathes last, Mark tells the story and he goes to the temple. This temple, this box where God is contained, if you like, behind a curtain and the curtain is ripped from top to bottom. And there are two ways we can think about this curtain being ripped. One is, Christ, we've never been allowed in there before. I wonder what God is like. I wonder what it looks like in that box, in, in there, in that sacred space. I wonder what it looks like to be God. I see Mark goes straight back to the cross to show that. But anyway, that's another issue. Because the other bit is a bit like this. Well, that curtain now has let God out. Any way that we want to constrain God or box God in, the, the curtain has been torn and God has been let out. No wonder, no longer is there a sacred space, a holy of holies at the centre of the temple where only a few can encounter him. God is roaming. <laughs> God is moving worldwide. And uh, there's no way we can constrain him. God wants to get out of the boxes that we've put him in uh, today. Sacred, sacred, divine. First thing, heaven and earth. Second thing is this, clean and unclean. Or if you like, holy, sacred and unholy. Clean and unclean. You may well be familiar with the stories of Jesus in the New Testament. And we find so often that Jesus crosses these boundaries of clean and unclean in terms of the Jewish expectations so many times. You'll be familiar maybe of the story in Mark 5, this wonderful kind of sandwich of a story. We've got Jairus who comes to Jesus saying, my daughter's dying, will you come and heal her? And Jesus starts to head off to see Jairus's uh, daughter. And halfway there, there's a woman who has an issue of blood for 12 years who reaches out and touches Jesus' cloak And um, as a result, she becomes whole. She becomes uh, healed. And then Jesus heads off to Jairus' daughter. By the time he gets there, maybe because he's been delayed because of this lady, uh, the daughter is, in fact, dead. What will he do? Jesus plays down, comes in, touches her and brings her back to life. These two circumstances are very clear circumstances where there is an issue of uncleanness. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that this uncleanness is catching. That if you touch someone who is unclean, you yourself become unclean. If you touch a dead body, you become unclean. And uncleanness here means a, a segregation, a separation from the ability to enter into the worship of God at the temple. And you have to go through a ritual to get yourself clean again. What do we find here in these stories that when this woman reaches out and touches Jesus, 
It's not that Jesus becomes unclean. The flow of uncleanness doesn't come from her to Jesus. Actually, the flow is the other way around, isn't it? That it comes from Jesus to her. The cleanness, the wholeness, the sacredness, we might say, of Jesus is something that is catching, <laughs> that is spreading like a... No, not like a virus, that would be bad. It's spreading. It's something that is caught, even as you encounter Jesus. It's not that Jesus becomes unclean, but rather that you, as you touch Jesus, become whole and you become healed. You know, we can have that same mentality, maybe, that we can think of the world and think of um, places or maybe people that we think, oh, I don't know if I want to be around them. Maybe they will infect me, that, you know, they'll get me um, unclean in some way. But something else is happening. Because just like Jesus has a catching holiness, a catching cleanliness, that same spirit that Jesus has is in us. The Holy Spirit, that means that this flow doesn't come to us from uncleanliness, but rather it flows the other way round. And we can be agents of that cleanliness in the world Holiness, sacredness. We carry this sacred Holy Spirit and it spreads. People catch it. I love the story in Mark 2. It's the story of a bunch of people at Levi's house. And it's a motley crew is how it seems to be. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are offended and they're going, what? Like that is a place to hang out? And Jesus says, I'm really comfortable here. I'm here, comfortable here with the tax collectors and the sinners. This is the place I want to be because it's the unhealthy, if you like, the unclean that need the doctor. Not the clean. If you think you're clean, fine, because I'm here to spread wholeness. And I'm not worried who I can hang out with because I know which way this wholeness flows. Heaven and earth, clean and unclean. The last one is this, private and public. You know, in the West, we have this conception broadly in our culture, uh, which has got a whole history to it as to why we think like this, that says that belief belongs to the private, me as an individual. And if you like fact, and it doesn't belong in the public, facts belong in the public realm and beliefs belong in the private realm. In the West, we have the removal of the uh, the allowance, if you like, of any God talk in the public sphere. And it's a lie. It's a lie. And I think we've bought into that lie, actually, as Christians, that belief that what we trust in in Jesus is something that belongs to us personally. We have a personal faith. But it doesn't belong in the public sphere. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a really interesting person when it comes to this because he was theologian uh, in the midst of Nazi Germany and a leader of what they called the Confessing Church. And he had a lot to say about what it means for the church to exist in culture, in wider culture. So there was within Nazi Germany a church. It was a very Christian country. Uh, and broadly, the church uh, was allowed to be part of this growing um, German nationalism. And the church basically did, if you like, the religious stuff. And the state did the governing stuff, if you like. So the church gets separated. <laughs> you do the religious stuff and you bless us, that says the state, as we do all this other stuff. But broadly, you keep in your space and I'll keep in mine. 
And bon- Bonhoeffer, and we know kind of how that went, and Bonhoeffer saw that pretty clearly. He said, no, you can't do that. Like as if our faith is something that is just about, we, we can't just be a chaplain to culture. We can't just allow culture to carry on its way and we bless it as it goes, be, live long and prosper. There's something more than our, to our faith than just some kind of belief that can be put in a box. He said this. I think that the church cannot remain a positive force if it continues to remove itself from the stress and strain of contemporary events. The church has a prophetic role to play in the world, not just a pastoral one. The true church and the world cannot always be on friendly terms. The sort of friendliness between church and society that we have cultivated in the past, especially in Germany, is actually the cause of the church's increasing irrelevance. You know, I can kind of see what he's saying, that if you start to say that faith belongs in this contained sphere and the rest of the world belongs in this other sphere, that is, in the end, keeping faith marginalised on the edge and the rest of culture is going to journey on. We've bought into this lie, I think. The lie that God does not belong in the public sphere. And it's a lie for two reasons. First is because, hey, we know that all actions do, in fact, rely on a belief. You can't just have facts without a belief system that lies behind it. And so to deny the fact that there's a belief system that's driving everyone's choices, whether they're Christian or whatever that is going, whatever is going on under the, under the skin, we need to know it. <laughs> you can't. Everyone has a belief system. So it's a fallacy anyway. But the second thing is this that we believe that God is God of the whole cosmos. He is Lord of all, not just religious things, not just churchy things. Jesus is Lord of all. Hmm. I like this. A guy called Alan Scott said, do you know what? The Holy Spirit is not just good at religious stuff. He's good at everything. I remember I was in a meeting with Alan Scott and he had a word of knowledge uh, for someone who had a, 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 an arm, an injury or something like that. And he, and he prayed for them and, and they got healed. It was great. And then he said he had another word of knowledge. And they said, I want to pray for the architects and for the town planners. I feel like God wants to bless you today. That's my word of knowledge. I was like, oh, you can have words of knowledge that apply to people's real life jobs. That's incredible. He got them standing up and he looked them in the eye, each one of them, and said, thank you for what you do. Thank you for how you are part of bringing God's order and beauty to our towns and to our cities. I want to bless you. I want to pray for you. I was like, oh, yeah, I've got this box. I've got this box. God does this healing thing of personal stuff, but he also wants to do this healing thing for whole towns and whole cities. The Holy Spirit's good at that, too. And so I get excited when I speak to my friends. I speak to my friend who's a policeman and he woke up one day. He was working on a case and he felt like, God, the Holy Spirit gave him an idea of where to find a particular piece of evidence. And he went there and he found it. I get excited when I speak to a friend of mine who's a teacher. And as much as possible before students come into his classroom, he prays over every chair, praying for peace in the classroom, good learning for the student. And of course, that somehow that they would get a revelation of who God is for them. 
because this is a place where God's interested. I get excited when I talk to, when I hear of a, a businessman, a car salesman in America who deliberately limits his profits because, as he says, he doesn't want to disadvantage people who don't understand his business model. I get excited when I speak to a builder who just really loves to work on properties that are almost falling down and bringing them back to a livable kind of state. He says, I, so that he can participate in something of God's, the renewal of God that comes to all things. I like talking to my solicitor friend who particularly works in mediation between families that are breaking up trying to bring peace and order, knowing that that's exactly what Jesus does, is steps into our points of pain and conflict and brings as much peace as impossible as is possible. It can be a painful place to be. I get excited talking to my accountant friend who knows that in the end, all things add up and all things in the end will be summed up in Jesus and Jesus will become all in all, and everything will be brought to him, and he will make sense and renew all things. And in the meantime, he calls us to play our part.